Some Lords of Pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we're back with some more new gen for you. We've reached SummerSlam 1995 and when we began this series, uh, we called it myth-busting because of 1995's poor reputation. And I guess this show was always going to be the acid test uh, main evented as it is by King Mabel against Diesel. Um, but never has there been a sort of... Um, a true reflection of what we've been trying to do here than this show, because the main event aside, this is actually a really good SummerSlam. Um, and I, I felt like many of the virtues we've talked about so far uh, very much were present in this show in that it watched very cohesively um, and the variety on the cards was right. And, you know, it's not full of big name matches, but everything has its place. Everything is well ordered. They finish some angles, they set up some angles. You know, it's it's textbook pro wrestling writing, really, as far as I'm <coughs> concerned. Excuse me, I'm coughing. <coughs> yes, uh, absolutely. A new gen, I mean, I don't like it as much as I like SummerSlam 93 and love SummerSlam 94, but uh, new gen has it, or, or is it the other way around? I can't remember. Um, new gen has a strong record. I think when it comes to all the big four pay-per-views, uh, and so, SummerSlam '95 remembered for that main event. Probably not really remembered for anything else. Maybe the ladder match. Don't know. Uh, but I would dare say that a lot of people, that the average wrestling fan, would struggle to name what was on the card outside of the main event without looking it up first. Uh, which probably, you know, in some ways you could see that as a, a criticism and call it forgettable but in other words in other ways you could see it which is the way that i would see it as um bred from a lack of familiarity and just immediately believing in you know oh SummerSlam 95 that shows crap isn't it and you go well no not really when you look at it there's some stuff on there that's not great i mean undertaker and karma for example seem to wrestle forever uh, and you you know you look it up and it's 15 minutes long after the fact but Honest to God, even when I watch it now, it feels like it's about 35 minutes long. Maybe that's, though, because I'm not a big fan of casket matches. I don't know. But, yeah, like you said, all the all the typical new-gen traits are there. I suppose the challenge with this series of podcasts we're doing is to try and not say the same stuff over and over again, even though essentially the same stuff is what defines these shows over and over again because cohesive is the word you use, and it applies not just to individual shows, but, of course, across the era. The most interesting thing for me about SummerSlam... 95 though is and again it's a context thing and sort of mentioned this with various things through this series about how new gen in the most curious way seems to preempt stuff that would happen many years later reminds me very much the build of it to when they brought shane mcmahon back in 2016 and they they pulled pulled that sort of you know, they played that reality record of, you know, ratings are dropping and I'm here to shake things up and I'm here to, you know, inject energy into the product and so on and so forth. And in the lead up to SummerSlam 1995, Gorilla Monsoon first becomes interim. He's interim president to begin with, interim WDF president. And in House of Cards style, that's the US version, he basically says, uh, I'm only the interim president, so I could be the most fan-friendly fan president in history, and I'm going to totally shake up SummerSlam. This happens pretty late on in the build to the show, uh, and so he basically just completely rejigs the entire card a couple of weeks 
out from the from the pay per view. Uh, and though I can't, there are a number of matches booked that get shaken up. I can't remember all. The one I do remember is that originally Shawn Michaels was going to defend the IC against Sid, and that gets changed obviously to the ladder match with Razor Ramon. And the reason they rerun it as a ladder match with Razor Ramon is because the first one was so fantastic. So you've got a weird element just to the just behind how this show coalesces. Um, a weird element of reality era to it and a, and, a, and a strange prediction of what would happen many years later and to some degree continues to happen today, really, which is the idea of an authority figure beginning to shake things up. Now, the the fact that SummerSlam 95 is maybe not remembered that well, maybe that, you know, whether that speaks to, to, to something about how this tired, played out old trick perhaps never works, I don't know. But it's a, it's an interesting note that I wanted to put out there at the top of the show. Yeah, a lot to break down there. I was going to say about the whole, the the top of the cards of this show is what everyone remembers, right? So I think people look, people, the, the top three matches, Brett v. Isaac Yankum, Sean v. Razor, and Dees v. Mabel, everyone remembers for different reasons, you know. Um, uh, the Isaac Yankum thing, because obviously he would become Kane and fake Diesel, of course, uh, like sort of at a later time. Um but it's remembered as being one of those great Bret Hart matches alongside, you know, Jean-Pierre Lafitte and um, Haikushi, you know, like those matches that Bret Hart had when he wasn't carrying the belt around with him, when he was, you know, the utility guy just kind of adding his brand of magic. You know, everyone remembers those sorts of matches that Bret had. So people do remember that one. And of course, the novelty value of the guy later becoming Kane. Um, and everyone was short and Razor too because it's kind of it's not as celebrated as the first one, but it's still pretty good. If they didn't botch the finish, maybe you know it's one of those debates I often see. If 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 the finish goes clean, would it be would it be better than the first one? So, something which people often talk about. And then obviously Diesel Mabel is is pretty infamous, and of course features Lex Luger's last appearance on uh, WF TV before he uh, goes off to. WCW and turns up on the Nitro set, so pretty historic stuff going on there too. And as you say, the 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 Sid being replaced thing is quite interesting. I tried to find out the you know the backstage aspects of that because obviously, as you say, on screen they they ran it as as uh, Gorilla Monsoon shaking the cards up, but they must have decided that um, you know that Sid or maybe Sean politics for it. <laughs> possibly <laughs> so either they decide that sid wasn't uh wasn't the kind of person that you could put in that spot or which i wouldn't have thought so because he was main eventing the week you know this month before uh or you know they just decided that they needed to put razor on there or i don't know it's a fu- it's a funny one but um like you say if that happened today you can imagine the reactions that changed the card that you know, that close to the pay-per-view, whereas obviously at the time you just had to accept it. (laughs) Well, it puts me in mind of um, Survivor Series 2017. Do you remember that? Where they had advertised uh, Jinder Mahal and Brock Lesnar. Oh, God. um, And the champion versus champion. And then they switched the title onto AJ Styles, you know, weeks before, the a couple of weeks before the show uh, and, and revamped the card as a result. And then um, I think there might have been something else on that card as well. I can't remember that got revamped. Um, and then, uh, of course, the following year with Daniel Bryan, not quite the same, but obviously they did a late title switch there as well. Maybe even, I think, the SmackDown before the show. Um, so, it, so it happens. 
it's it's the it's the specific context of it happening this idea of a of a authority figure openly recognizing that the card needs to be seen more excited is more exciting you know um and it strikes me as a very a very 20 very 2019 thing to take a, a sort of a story driven angle that had been built to and replacing it with something that's just it's you know it's so brazen it's practically pornographic in the sense of you know we're doing this because you loved the first one so we'll just give you this again with no apparent rhyme or reason behind it other than you loved it the first time you saw it um you know i could totally see them doing something like that but like you say the irony is today if they did that I think people would be excited for the change, but there'd be a little criticism out there about the fact that they're just appealing to, you know, in, in the in the crudest way to wrestling fans without any story being behind it. Um, but the curious thing about the ladder match course is that it does still sort of play into the angle that they had with Sean, which they would sort of make more explicit when they ran the injury angle with Owen at the end of the year. Which in itself is kind of precognitive of what they did with Seth. Talked a little bit about this last week, in that it's about Sean uh, redeeming past mistakes and and the way they kind of contextualise this ladder match uh, at a later time. Certainly, I can't remember if they do it at, at the time, but definitely a little later is him basically recouping that loss from from WrestleMania ten as sort of writing another wrong of his of his past. So uh, it it kind of still fits with the wider angle that they're playing, but it is a, a very brazen um, and open uh, 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 switch to make. Not that I'm complaining, because I dare say the match, even though I have issues with it, um, is, is ultimately better than what they might have got with uh, Sid. And I'm not dissing Sid when I say that, because I'm actually a big fan of Sid, but uh, certainly new-gen Sid anyway. Um, but there you go. Yeah, and I think that it's a postmodern show in, in, in quite a lot of ways. Um, you know, that you can kind of see um, they're starting to build in this idea of the click much more explicitly. Like obviously you've had the diesel, you know, diesel Sid feud on the back of Sean being injured by Sid. Now you've got Razor and Sean having a kind of buddy match just to see who's the best uh, in a match type that they made famous you know, and, and, and as you say, that's something which today, you know, this idea of uh, so-and-so v so-and-so, one, two, and three, has become, like, I mean, epidemic, really. But back then, it, it, it didn't happen so much. Uh, so that's quite postmodern. But also, I was, you know, thinking about the Dean Douglas uh, watching the show in a little <laughs> underground cabin and grading the matches iwc before iwc and it's 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 incredible really like you know he he even you know it's funny like nowadays on in in sports broadcasts you know they have these uh you know these kind of um telemetry tools and stuff where they they you know they'll draw like their arrows and they can like pause and fast forwards and all that sort of stuff and he's got a marker pen and he's literally drawing on the TV screen, <laughs> which is just tremendous. But it, it's it's a, a gimmick, I think, Dean Douglas, which doesn't get very much credit because, of course, he's far more famous for his, uh, his ECW under Shane Douglas. But I was talking to our friend Primetime on Twitter and, you know, we were talking about how actually that gimmick, you know, five or ten, five or ten years either side of when it was being used would have gone down a storm. Uh, it's just sort of seems a little out of place in New Gem, but 
but actually like watching that sort of those segments uh was really enjoyable and then of course you have a pissed off razor ramon come backstage after his match to find dean douglas slagging him off and uh and they have a little brawl and that starts their feud off well speaking of our of our friends if he's if he's listening i think we ought to uh start referring to our friend doc as doc douglas from now on in tribute to uh, to the dean <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Doc will be thrilled to be compared to Dean Douglas. It's all meant in good love, Doc. <laughs> um, hashtag Doc Douglas coming your coming to your Twitter soon. Um, yeah, I mean the, the Dean Douglas is a funny one because I, you know, I mean I thought he was decent enough in the ring. He was good enough in the ring, but it obviously kind of gets um, basically just shafted. Um, and in your house a couple of months later when Sean has to, to sort of um, relinquish the Intercontinental Championship and instead of when he's meant to be wrestling Douglas and instead of Douglas getting a, a shot at it, they just basically sort of hand it to Razor Ramon instead. And, and again, not really to complain because Razor was a was a proven deft hand at being Intercontinental Champion. There's a reason why they kept going back to him, but it's it's around this time. And like you said, maybe the, the shift in the ladder match is an example of this, that the click... Um, you begin to see very explicitly their influence on the product come to the fore. And at times it's a positive thing and at times it's a very negative thing. And I think the fact that Dean Douglas uh, kind of has his, has his run curtailed because he's pushed hard from the onset. Um, and it suddenly sort of just gets that, that happens at a later in your house. And then you sort of just don't really see much of him anymore um, to any great extent. Um, well, of course he, it, he himself, it would have a, some extremely, uh, strong words for uh, the click. I mean, he was he was renowned as being the click's biggest, one of their biggest victims. Um, you know, oh, like right. he... and it and it it watches that way when you watch the product. You know, if you if you know the click are playing politics at this time, it's very difficult to watch what's happening on screen and not become a bit of an amateur conspiracy theorist when you see it. And obviously, we've no hard evidence to support the idea that this is happening. But you know, I think we know enough to 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 be able to reason away suspicions. <clears throat> that perhaps uh, backstage influences are now beginning to affect uh, what we see as fans on screen. And a lot of the time, I'm sure people will forgive it because they're getting to see great matches between talented wrestl- wrestlers. Uh, the problem is the talented wrestlers that aren't getting the opportunities to give you great matches as well. That's that's what sticks in the craw. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you know, Dean slash Shane Douglas is obviously like an in- incredibly... Um, talented guy, especially you know Mike wise, and it's one of those things where uh, he he comes in and obviously the clicker like, oh this guy, we don't think this guy works around here, and you know and they essentially elbow him out of the door, and um, you know as you say, if it, it watches it watches that Diesel and uh, and Sean uh, and Razor in particular are really kind of calling the shots. I mean, kid and. And Triple H, not so much at this point, but but yeah, it's it's certainly a bit um, a bit awkward. And and if you read Brett's book, and obviously that's you know, and again to be taken with a pinch of salt, Brett's opinion on the clip, but um, <laughs> but but certainly there there does seem to be a, a genuine tension about uh, how much these guys have Vince's ear. And I dare say Brett had Vince's ear just as much because he spent the whole of 1995 trying to convince Vince to. Uh, to go and pick up Steve Austin, so I mean, which eventually turned out to be a very good idea. Well, quite, especially for Brett as well. 
No, indeed. Uh, so it's it's actually a, like I mean we've actually managed to get into some pretty um, you know some pretty deep issues like right off the bat there. But I, I guess you know when we talk about those those sort of hidden classics of New Gen, which has been another theme of this series. Hakushi v the one two three kids oh. is essentially Rey Mysterio v Kurt Angle. You know, sort of seven or eight years before Rey Mysterio v Kurt Angle. Well, I mean, that's, you know, high praise. Um, I don't think it's, and I'm not saying that you're implying it is, but um, it's it's not necessarily to the same uh, standard, but certainly it's it's extremely good. And you could sort of see it as a bit of a blueprint um, because you have the, the same, um, I guess the spirit of it is the same, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the sense of acute in-ring style, the, <laughs> the, uh, the sense of acute style on both fronts uh, is there, and while Hakushi and the One Two Three Kid, um, perhaps more similar than than Angle and Mysterio are, um, <clears throat> it's 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 not it's not. I don't think it's as explosive. I think Angle and Mysterio is a very explosive match. Hakushi and the Kid, possibly because it's a product of its time, uh, feels a lot more measured. Uh, but I like that. I like the fact it's a little bit more measured. Uh, and I like the fact that perhaps you could even argue it's a bit more patient as well, because Angle and Mysterio goes at a hell of a pace. That's one of its best traits. Um, but what you get with that with that curtain jerker is yet another example. Uh, well, first of all, that dispels this notion that cartoon characters were all over the card. But second of all, that, you know, it... it, it New Gen as an era has this habit of just suddenly ambushing you with a really fantastic match. You know, whether that's that's Razor Ramon and Rick Martel wrestling for the Intercontinental Championship on an episode of Raw or Akushi and the one, two, three kid here at the opening of SummerSlam or hell. I think there's a there's a fantastic match on Raw in ninety six between Steve Austin and Bart Gunn of all people. You know, but it just it has this habit of ambushing you with a really amazing match when perhaps you least expect it. And I think that the the, the it's funny because people talk about a lack of talent depth with New Gen, and you could say that that you know Hakushi versus the One Two Three Kid is about the extent of their their mid card outside of of uh, Razor and Dean Douglas. But um, I think really when it comes to New Gen, you have a great depth of talent. It's just more concentrated in fewer people, um, and this is an example of that. You know, Hakushi and the One Two Three Kid are two characters who One Two Three Kid has his own arc, but they're not necessarily the most prominent on in the product. But they hang around, and when they are uh, given the stage to do their thing, not only do they do their thing, they do it magnificently, and you end up with magic every time you end up watching them, and it's uh, it's great. And I think when we did our playlist columns a few years back, I do believe whichever one of us had this one picked. Akushi versus the one, two, three kid as a as a highlight of some slum history. Absolutely, we definitely included it. Um, I can't remember which one which one did the write up, but I think we both we both uh, we both would have kind of nominated it. I That's believe like, as yeah. well when um, uh, our friend Skullduggery did his um, SummerSlam uh, tournament bracket bracketology type thing, um, that this match uh, got through quite a few rounds of voting. Um, I mean, and I think the thing is, the reason I compare it to, to, to Mysterio and Angle is it is that sort of spiritual predecessor thing um, that we've often talked about on the pond um, in that, you know, you've got Kid, who's obviously, you know, a renowned high flyer. 
Hakushi, who is bigger than Kid, but can fly just as well, you know, which is a, a nice sort of, you know, a nice forerunner of someone like Kurt Angle that could basically do everything. You know, he's a 220-pound man that can do moonsaults and things, but but can also throw you around the ring, can also tap you out, can also, you know, uh, move around as quickly as the smaller guys. And, and that's what was so cool about that. And, and I just think, you know, seeing... Uh, kids who was for WWF very ahead of his time uh, do his thing and then just basically in terms of roster positioning take the two guys they knew could get the the show off to a hot start and just put them together and just let them wrestle and that's what great curtain jerkers are made of and you know indisputably this is a great curtain jerker and I love the finish in particular it's a classic heel beats a baby face curtain jerker finish with like kid going for the spin kick hakushi anticipating it and then like planting it with the side slam uh and just getting the win because kid took one risk too many brilliant wrestling psychology love it again another <laughs> another new gen uh specialty you know that's that's why this is this is to me what wrestling is this you know this is what i recognize as professional wrestling and i just don't see it anymore uh, and uh you know <clears throat> this match as well uh proof of two things uh f- which are issues of the modern product as well uh, uh first of all uh, just because you can do the high flying stuff doesn't mean that you have to be doing it constantly through the entire uh match whenever you're wrestling um it's it's you know it's better used with with precision and purpose uh, and second you know if this existed today people wouldn't bat an eyelid at it because uh, it would exist in a world where everybody does the stuff that they're doing and the reason why this works so well especially on this card is because nobody else is doing the stuff that they that they're doing whether they can do it or not you know they wrestle to type and there's something to be said for that well this is why i was so keen on on tyler breeze as a talent because he had that timeless quality he's a very he was a very new gen wrestler Tyler Breeze I always thought you know he uh, he had these sorts of um curtain jerkers routinely um on the the early takeovers and and on sort of weekly NXT TV and he fulfilled that role you know that very much that kid fulfilled in in new gen you know it was a he was a utility guy who was a who was comfortable at the top of the cards comfortable at the bottom of the cards and basically just um could do all this cool high-flying stuff but restricted it to his character and what his character would be doing at any one time in a match and and that's why it's a it's a real shame that 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 breeze's main roster career didn't take off because he was one of those talents you know like rollins um like ambrose like like Wyatt, those characters that have shown the ability to tell stories in the ring in an older school way. Um, and it's a, it's a pity that the, uh, the more content heavy guys ended up sort of coming into NXT and outnumbering the story guys, you know, because it, it looked like they were building up for a while there, a bunch of excellent sort of new school storytellers, but it's kind of gone down the wrong path. Uh, yeah, it got carried away. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it got carried away with the uh, with the with the corners of excess rather than the uh, you know the the corners of of uh, old school sensibility. Sadly. Yeah, for sure. 
Okay, so we also next got with the the pay per view debut of Hunter Hearst Helmsley. I mean, even for pure historical <laughs> significance, everyone has to watch this match uh, because I tell you what, he's really good from day one, isn't he? Um, and I think sometimes people think about the narrative about about Triple H is always he was this rubbish gimmick guy, and then they gave him a bit more edge in 97 and he never looked back. Uh, I've never really bought into that because every time I have gone back and watched new gen Hunter, he's always been in, in, in good matches. Like, would you have watched this and thought this will be the number one heel in pro wrestling for a decade? No, <laughs> uh, but Nevertheless, you can certainly see the talent there. And, you know, I think it's a very good announce yourself on a big stage performance. I think the the interesting thing with Hunter Hearst Helmsley uh, is. I mean, in some ways, it feels a little bit like, uh, um, albeit diluted, latter day million dollar man. Uh, character you know you get these kind of rich archetypes in wrestling rich man archetypes in wrestling all the time so in that sense it's a tried and tested formula for him to be able to succeed but uh, the interesting thing is that i think if you watch his early stuff 95 and 96 you see him beginning to uh, introduce sort of stylistic and structural elements to matches that would come to sort of define the ring product during the attitude era uh before you know mick foley and steve austin and 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 rocky Maivia do likewise uh and i'm not saying you know he's not and bret hart as well and he's not necessarily i'm not saying he's the basis or he's ahead of the curve or anything like that but it's it's interesting to see him um already doing his own thing to to sort of um I don't want to say revitalize because that's completely the wrong word, but to inject some extra energy and aggression into, uh, into wrestling. And is a big part we've talked in the past on these sort of podcasts about 95 being the year where the products start to get more aggressive and Bret Hart in particular, uh, that feels very pronounced, but Hunter Hearst Helmsley's matches, uh, you know, I think there's an in your house where he wrestles Fatu and they sort of, it, it's, it's, it's got elements of attitude to that. And then of course you get the, hog pen match at season's beatings, which we'll talk about in a future show that feels like it's come straight out of the attitude here in some ways. Um, and reflects, you know, uh, gimmick matches like buried alive, for example, but we'll get into that, uh, you know, in, in the later podcast, the point I'm making is that this is really, first of all, I, like you say, it's his debut. So it's historic from that perspective. Um, but you're very soon going to see this guy in the middle of this roster, becoming very individual and, and standing out from the pack because of the way that he's sort of putting t matches together in a slightly different bent to, to everyone else around him. Uh, there are, there's, there's more brawling in his matches than people might anticipate. It's curious because he's always had a reputation as kind of a technical guy, but he's never really been a, a scientific wrestler. He's always been a wrestler with a plan. He's always been a character with a plan in the ring. Um, but even from this, and he can always, you know, he's always held his own when it comes to technical wrestling. But um, it's interesting because even from this early stage, you see uh, a lot of his matches flirt with stuff that would come to define sort of the predominant match style he'd be involved with, you know, in the next half decade. I mean, I, I loved, <laughs> I loved the match because 
as you say, there's some stuff that, that, that anticipates, you know, how he'd be in, in sort of 99, 2000. But also, it is brilliantly 80s, a lot of this stuff, because, like, that whole... I mark out for this stuff so much. They're about to lock up, and then he'll step away and hold his hands up. And, like, and so there's there's Bob Holly, like, you know, wanting to wanting to lock up, and he'll just keep stepping away. And they're finally about to, and he gets in front of the referee and then just punches Bob Holly in the face. And it's just, I, I honestly, I mark out for that stuff. Like, it's just, sometimes the classics just have to be done. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's great. And I also, um, I, I, he committed to that character. He committed to that Blue Blood character. You know, even the way he took the white lacy shirt off and hung it carefully on the, uh, on the rope so it wouldn't get creased and stuff like that. Like he just really committed to it. Um, and I think, well, I mean, that's sorry, go on. I mean, everything you read about triple H is that ultimately he got to where he is, um, because of the fact that he just worked harder than anybody else did, you know, and all those crazy stories about, you know, life on the road with the click. He was the designated driver. He didn't drink. He didn't take drugs. (laughs) He just wanted to work out <laughs> and um, and he and he sort of, you know, hung out with these guys, not only because they were the power backstage, but because he could he was a compared to them a bit of a novice and he could learn a lot of stuff from them. And he took it all in. He applies it all. And, and you know, like absolutely one of the uh, the things he doesn't get credit for enough is just the, the sheer work ethic of the man. Um and a lot of people be cynical, go, oh, well, he married the boss's daughter. It's like he was the best wrestler in the world the year before he married the boss's daughter. So, you know. Well, I've, yeah, I mean, the thing with the boss's daughter thing, you know, I've always taken kind of the middle line on that and said, look, I think, you know, he got to where he got to before that. I'm not I think you'd struggle to look at where his career went, particularly in the early 2000s and say that there wasn't an element of that playing an influence in his career. And I think he certainly benefited from it. But I don't think anywhere near to the extent that, you know, that the harshest critics have liked to point out. I think it's kind of a, you know, as is always the case, I think the truth is probably in the middle ground somewhere. But, um, you know, it it certainly is no reflection on his talent as a performer. And, you know, you were mentioning the the 80s stuff there. And that's what's so glorious about a lot of the new gen is that it straddles that line between what had worked before, um, you know, and, and sort of updating it, but not straying so far away from it that it stops resembling intelligent professional wrestling you know that's the thing and i think you know i mean it's a conversation for another time whether it was attitude what happened after attitude could be any number of influences you know you you look at i look at the product today i see two guys pretending to fight you know because it's just it's just not believable what i'm seeing in the context of professional wrestling Uh, and new gen is and that's what i like and that's why i love it so much and it's got that it's got the the elements of like I say, what had worked 10, 15, 20 years before, but it was kind of updating it. And it was, you know, I mean, 97 is when you get the absolute perfect balance, isn't it? But but here in 95, you're already seeing it. There's there's a certain joy to be had in seeing the product in that sort of state of flux, if you like. You know, where it was, where you did have a Hunter Stelmsley who reminded you of sort of the, the, the golden era, um, doing stuff. That, pre- that predicts what was about to happen within the next few years as well. I think there's a, there's a real sense of, of 
transformativeness about the ring product, particularly at this point in 95, that's a lot of fun to watch play out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agreed entirely. Um, it, it's, it's been a... It's been a great thing to come back and uh, and to watch this stuff and just remember like why it was um, something that we remained invested in for all of these years, you know. And obviously, when you kind of have so much wrestling back catalogue that you can choose to go back and watch, like I don't think I'd seen um, SummerSlam '95 for a very long time. I watched Michaels v razor ramon 2 for um this summer slam bracketology thing that i did in 2018 and i watched uh hakushi be kid for the same series and i'd, and I'd watched taker be karma when i wrote an undertaker series about four years ago um but the rest of it i i can't think i'd seen maybe since the time or a few years after you know it's been a long time since i saw it certainly wasn't a show that i owned on vhs or anything i guess it wasn't the sort of show that you did own on vhs so um <laughs> yeah so it's it was it's a real real pleasure to go and uh, watch it and find out again that the myth needed to be busted uh so smoking guns then uh, of course the predominant tag team of the era uh they got a little tag match against the blue brothers um I mean, it was typical Billy and Bart, wasn't it? It's like strong, athletic, fast-paced, enjoyable, but um, yeah, nothing, nothing well, too what, much to take away from it. But well, it's what we've, you know, how many times have we banged on about this? You know, it's it's it contributes to a well-rounded show. You know, it's it's not there to be the best tag match of the year. It's got no intention to be the best tag match of the year. Probably isn't even interested in trying it being the ten best tag team match of the year. They're, they're there. They've gotten a lot of time slot and they need to tell a story. They go out, they do that. Uh, and while it's not going to take any awards home in its own right, it helps contribute to uh, SummerSlam 1995 as a, uh, as a full picture, as a whole show. Uh, and you need the little... Um, I don't want to call it a lull, but you need the 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 sort of the the perhaps less exciting or less exhilarating elements of the show uh, because they're important. Like in any like in any novel or film, you know, there has to be quieter periods uh, for the more exciting periods to mean as much as they come to mean. And without that, you just get uh, you know you get the sh- sugar rush <clears throat> wrestling that we have in abundance today. And so uh, yeah, like you say, I mean, there's not much to say about it. Um, and sometimes the fact that there's not much to say about it is the thing that's worth saying about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and obviously Billy Gunn would would go on um, to be. And this is another interesting theory I've had for quite a long time now that Billy Gunn is the forerunner of the the lost class of 2008, <laughs> um, because he's a guy that if you watch him in the Smoking Guns, it's like here's a really talented guy you know good looking good personality big great look um and then he gets the the second he's he's not he's part of not one but two great tag teams looks like he's going to get an absolutely massive push uh in 1999 comes up has that some match with the rock (laughs) uh, and then you know, it's a huge position for him to be in, and then it just never quite happens for him. Um, 
you know, like when you, when me and Mazza watched it back, you know, there were times when he thought Billy Gunn, Val Venus, um, these sorts of guys would would actually kind of take that next step, um, and they never quite do. It's just which is quite it's just quite interesting, but I, I think it's you can see even already now that some of those people that are in tag teams, you know, after they've done the thing where they break Bret Hart out, they break Shawn Michaels out, and they turn them into sort of main event stars. That has started to become a route now. Um, after those two have pioneered it, so that's quite an interesting thing that, to think and about. And that contributed as well, uh, majorly to you know the pretty much the extinction, the outright extinction of career tag teams. Uh, you know because it's that thing that that particular you in particular hate so much about yeah. the Genetti. Uh, you know, and and sort of a tag team forms immediately. People are talking about who's going to be the breakout star, uh, and so often tag teams form for the purpose of creating a breakout star, and even that in itself is done form in formulaic fashion. You know, because guy A shows frustration with guy B for a couple of matches. Guy A then turns on guy B next week. Guy A cuts a heel promo in a suit. They have one pay per view <laughs> match, and you never hear anything from either of them ever again. You so know, I'm... and that's. My Go favorite on. example. Go on. Crime time broke I up. I knew, yeah, I thought that's and had, point. and had a strap match. Strap match, and that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the, you know, that's perhaps the key example, you know, and we've seen it many, many, many times. What pay per view uh, was that? So, it's like one of the worst pay per views I can remember that was. And it's and it's so sad, you know, and that's why when they do things like break DIY up the way that they did, um, I had the reaction that I had, the fact that they were those two then went on to wrestle to just the the absolute dystopian nightmare vision of mine of what wrestling shouldn't be is is besides the point um so yeah um i've waffled on for so long i've kind of strayed away from whatever my point was going to be but nevertheless uh you know bark gun billy gun versus the blue brothers just let it be that it doesn't need to be anything more and the fact it's not anything more shouldn't count against it frankly absolutely agreed agreed plus uh also uncle zebekiah sighting which is never a bad thing and I love the fact that it, you you could uh, you could easily believe it's the same Zeb who would then later go on to manage Jack Swagger years later. Oh, exactly, yeah, oh, entirely. Um, right, and then uh, I love the, like next match we're going to talk about. I absolutely just love everything about it. Had entirely forgotten this storyline existed. Um, it's the sort of storyline they try and do today quite often and always mangle it, uh, but worked brilliantly when they had sort of the right people behind it. So the storyline is that uh, Skip has basically been humiliated by losing twice to Barry Horowitz on TV. Uh, and and Sonny keeps egging him on to, uh, to sort of, you know, extinguish the embarrassment. Uh, and they started calling him Barry Horrible Ritz. And of course, the whole joke was that Barry Horowitz was a jobber throughout his, his time um with the company <laughs> and yet he has these two victories over skip who's supposedly a a young stud um and so you have sort of sunny come out all the way down in the entrance she's kind of you know on the mic sort of uh talking trash barry horowitz comes out they have actually what is genuinely a, a an enjoyable 11 minute mid-card match um and of course Barry ends up winning again with a roll-up after some Haikushi interference randomly. I'm not quite sure I understood why why it was Haikushi. Was there a story behind that? 
None springs to mind. Does Hakushi? I haven't had a chance to rewatch the show before the we've recorded. Does Hakushi interfere on behalf of Barry Horowitz? Yeah, he he basically. I think yeah, turns up I, and he jumps off the top rope. He doesn't hit. Uh, he doesn't hit uh, Skip, but he sort of jumps over the top of everybody in the ring, including the ref. And then Skip sort of turns around and gets distracted, and he gets rolled up. I believe uh, what happens is that it eventually translates into sort of um, parlays into Barry Horowitz becomes uh, Hakushi's sort of um, uh, guide to uh, life in America, and sort of <laughs> that's amazing. Um, sort of uh, helps to try and uh, uh, acclimate Hakushi and, and Americanize Hakushi. I think. I think that's where it goes. I know that's certainly a story of Hakushi at some point, and I believe this may be it, but I could be wrong, so don't don't quote me if I am, but that's where I think it goes. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just a kind of, like, it's a cool thing at the end of the match because actually, when you're watching it, and obviously, like I said, I haven't watched the show in a long time, so I was like, Hakushi, like, isn't he a heel? Like, what's he doing here? So yeah, it, was, it was an interesting interesting ending because i wasn't sure whose behalf he was going to interfere on um and of course sunny's beside herself with uh rage after uh after all of this but you know uh, it's another cool thing as well right because what is more heelish than uh a sort of pair of alpha contemptuous gym instructors you know, it's like it's a gr- <laughs> it's a great heel gimmick. I mean, it's 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 to be fair, it's very modern day, isn't it? I mean, you if you ever spent so much as five minutes in a gym, you you know exactly the kind of you've seen exactly the kind of person that uh, Sonny and Skip are supposed to be p- portraying. Absolutely. You know, it's those it's those posers who who sit on a machine for ten minutes after they've used it on their smartphone, you know, and and doll themselves up to go to the gym and take selfies in the mirror. Absolutely, and it's so so it's that sort of like. It, it it was a really good gimmick, and I, and I guess probably like again, Chris Candido is somebody that 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 got on the wrong side of the click, and Sonny in a slightly different way uh, got on the wrong side of the click. <laughs> but but more more on that more on that another time. Oh, that's probably, probably a show for Mazza that one. <laughs> yes, I was. I've just been looking up, and I was right. It's um, it translates eventually. Um, moves into Horowitz forming sort of a, a tag team with Akushi and attempting to Americanize him more. Um, yes. So there you go. That's where it leads to. Yeah. So cool. Uh, it's was, it was just a really cool match and a cool angle. I, I just, I genuinely really enjoyed will, the whole thing. I mean, what I will say is you're kinder on it than I am. I'm not a huge fan of the angle that they do with Barry Horowitz because to me, it feels all too much like them trying to reheat what they, uh, the magic that they accomplished with, uh, one, two, three, kid in night three when he upset um, Razor Ramon, and obviously to a far lesser extent. And I can't whether that was the intention, I don't know, but that's what I see when I see it, and so it makes it very difficult for me to enjoy it. I think I just it's it's a sort of you know time tested wrestling storyline, um, and they've done similar things lately with people like Santino. Um, trying to think of another example. They did something like this with Blue Pants in NXT. Um, when she, I think she beat like Sasha Banks. Was it Sasha Banks she beat? I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's like 
something that always just works, I think. And obviously, Barra Horowitz didn't. It's not like they ends up pushing him to one, two, three curd levels or anything. So I don't really mind it. Uh, okay, so now this match is a bit random. Um, Bertha Faye uh, v Alundra Blaze uh, for the women's championship. Um, I mean, obviously, not much to write home about uh, as a match, but interesting that you've got this sort of Nia Jax esque female wrestler against the sort of, you know, obviously athletic Alundra Blaze, which is kind of, you know, well, again, quite modern in a way. It's nowhere near the level of Alundra Blaze's work with uh, Bull Nakano from um, earlier that same year. It's a lot more character driven, though. Birth Faye is in uh, allegiance with. Um, Whippleman. That's the one. I always forget his name. Uh, Harvey Whippleman. They they play the whole sort of odd couple thing because he's obviously a very thin and sort of slight man, and she's a, uh, you know, um, uh, a larger woman. Uh, and uh, so it's more character driven. Like I say, the match itself isn't great, um, but it's got still got more to it than a lot of what we would see from women's wrestling for a very long time in WWE at various points. So you know, there's that at least. At least has a little dignity about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you know they they work the match in quite a clever way. She goes for the old uh, Blaze goes for the old Bret Hart slash Owen Hart victory roll <laughs> off the top rope, which is uh, which is kind of cool to see. And um, I quite enjoy the interactions between Whipperman and uh, Bertha Faye, this whole thing where, uh, like, she seems to have some sort of gimmick where it was like, you know, she believed that she was, like, stunningly beautiful and it was because mm. Whipperman had brainwashed her to believe that she was, which was quite interesting in the same way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, contributes to the variety of the card at the very least. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. Um, all right, so as we said earlier on, The Undertaker v Karma is possibly <laughs> the worst match of <laughs> Zombie Taker. I, 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 th- I think it's probably, although doesn't he wrestle Mabel not long after this? Um, does. <laughs> I'm I mean, it's 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 tough competition between those two matches. I actually know the Kamala one is pretty ratchet, isn't it? You know, when you when you, th- you when you think about it, I mean, that's barely a match. The Kamala one. When you think about it, it's a wonder he stayed with the company because they did just keep feeding him these like awful um, opponents for him to work with, just because they were big and you know monstrous. Um, the thing is about Karma is obviously the guy could work, so it's a bit yeah. of a. It's a bit of an odd one. Uh, I guess it's just the dying embers of the zombie thing, which well, means it just goes at such a slow pace. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think it, it's it's probably a um, Karma's probably an opponent that happens um, six months too early for Undertaker. In that, you know, I feel like if it was if it was six months later down the line, they probably would have had a more competitive match. Because, I mean, by December of '95, the Undertaker is becoming more humanized and he's becoming more animated. Uh, it's a very, very long process for that to happen, and it starts as early as SummerSlam '94, in actual fact. Um, but bit by bit, and we mentioned it, you know, earlier on in this podcast series, the way they sort of take the urn and melt it down into something that's very everyday and ordinary, in a, a, a sort of a gold necklace chain thing. Um, and you know, and and probably it's interesting. I say six months later, it, it probably would have been a match much more worth watching six months earlier. They probably would never have even booked him against someone like karma who yes, is a big man and, and is monstrous, but doesn't really have any supernatural vibes. 
uh, and doesn't and is is uh, presented at least very much as as a <clears throat> you know the kind of competitor you would expect workhorse like matches from. Uh, it's like this attempt to be that while at the same time being a typical zombie undertaker match. And it's a marriage made in hell because the two things just don't seem to click. Uh, and it goes around in circles for a long time. It doesn't really feel like it's got a linear narrative to it. It lasts. It feels like it lasts at least five, maybe even ten minutes too long. Uh, and it's and and I think it's it's handcuffed by the 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 gimmick, the genre, the casket match, which I don't think has ever really worked particularly well. If I'm if I'm being, I know that perhaps you disagree with that to a certain extent, but I don't feel like I've probably ever seen a single good casket match. So. Um, it had everything stacked against it, um, but it is nonetheless still an important chapter in, in the humanization of The Undertaker and an important chapter in his ongoing rivalry with the Million Dollar Corporation. In fact, it may even be the climactic one. I can't be certain of that, but off the top of my head, it feels like it might be. Yeah, it probably moves on to Mabel after this, doesn't it? I think so. Um, yeah, so um, it, it is just, yeah, it's very long. It's very drawn out. Um, even the casket, it looks really cheap mm. in this match. And they do some kind of thing where they, you know, he gets slammed on the casket and it almost breaks. And it's just a mm. bit, you know, whereas the other, the casket matches that I, I sort of really like are the ones where you've got the real kind of plush velvet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> big kind of old fashioned casket. Like uh, those ones I, I, I kind of mark for. But again, I was a little kid when The Undertaker, like, debuted. So a lot of the, like, trappings of that original Undertaker, like, a, a sort of, I'm a bit kinder with, I guess, because it's, it's, it's heady nostalgia to me. I mean, like, in the early days, when he was squashing jobbers on, you know, sort of syndicated TV, he put them in a body bag at the end of the match, <laughs> like, every time he beat one. Which was uh pretty dark when you come to think about it. Um, pretty dark. Probably a gimmick that would work very well today because it feels like a lot of wrestlers wrestle once on Raw and then you never see them again. So, well, I mean, Triple H probably should have put uh, <laughs> half of his title <laughs> yeah, two, in body yeah, two, He should have had the gimmick in 2003. Absolutely, <laughs> love it. Uh, okay, so I was, my favorite joke about that one has always been like. Uh, Mazza said on Twitter once that uh, he wanted the Triple H Buried Alive collection. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Um, so let's uh, move on to Bret Hart's uh, most recent opponent in this series. Um, of course, he would go on uh, to be fake Diesel and then finally would get a gimmick that would last in the rest of his career in Kane. But of course, Glenn Jacobs here was Isaac Yankum DDS. As we've explained in the series, this is all due to uh, the Jerry Lawler feud and uh, his personal his personal dentist, who it just so happens is also uh, a great big hulking monster who can pro-wrestle. Um, Who'd have thought? But it's, uh, you know... It's, it's, What's a I, coincidence? I love the fact, though, that, like, I mean, this is... It's really well done. Like his his music is like a drill. <laughs> it's like you were saying last week about like Diesel's music when yeah, it was I just know. a lorry. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's just um, and he's wearing the scrubs and stuff, and it's 
But the thing is, they just go and have a typically great Bret Hart mid-card match. And obviously, we know that, that Glenn Jacobs is a fantastic hand as a as a pro wrestler and is probably the most underrated performer of the past 25 years. Like, he is absolutely brilliant. And all this stuff about super heavyweights doing mad stuff, well, you know, Kane was doing it before most of them were. The, so there's a few things to mention about this. I I'm I actually have a real soft spot for this match. I think it's really good. Um, the um, uh, the so it's kind of it's not quite the payoff of the Jerry Lawler revisit for '95, uh, but it's 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 certainly the last pay per view match of that that revisited few. They go and have a cage um, match on Raw. They not only this, have a cage not? match on Raw, they have a cage match in which Jerry Lawler is in a shark cage above the cage. Oh my God, your favourite. Um, so uh, you know it's double the cage, um, and I think I think I, I think Jerry Lawler has the key, or there's some weird thing with the key as well in it, if memory serves. But anyway, um, but it's the last pay per view match of it. The uh, the Jerry Lawler feud of '95 I think is tremendous because of how aggressive it feels and how vitriolic it feels and you really you really do feel the contempt that the two characters have for one another through it and i think that that extends through to this um which has obviously stemmed as a result of jerry lawler having to go to his dentist to get therapy for having kissed bret hart and his own foot at king of the ring when he lost to king of the ring um you know which was all about humiliation after brett felt humiliated due to his loss after dedicating a win to his moment in your house so it's that again you get that wonderful sense of cause and effect uh, that happens throughout that informs the narrative progression of their rivalry which you just don't get anymore results in this match fiercely competitive highly aggressive as was most of brett's work in night five so again feeding into that but what i wanted to draw attention to most was the finish of it you know everyone talks about the survivor series diesel finish where he goes through the table the spanish announce table the first spanish announce table bump in wwe um the finish in this match is something i think we'd seen before but what happens is Brett gets caught up in the ropes. I think his head gets trapped between the, the top two ropes or yep. his neck. Um, and the referees go to, you know, to untangle him. But what's happening is Jerry Lawler is ragging on his legs on the outside and Yankum is, is wailing on him from inside. And it looks horrifying. Like it looks like it's genuinely painful and it looks like it could be genuinely uh, a serious situation. And it, it, it watches so convincingly um, that I think it's an instance of a pay-per-view match going to that kind of thrown-out finish, if you will, but it works in wonders because it feels like it fits the tone of the rivalry. It looks so brilliant visually on TV, uh, and of course parlays nicely into the the big uh, the big finish in the in the cage where Jerry Lawler can't intervene, and um, so I think. It's a it's a case of of that kind of a you know we'll 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 go to what's essentially a tie or we'll, we'll not give it a, a clean conclusion. I think it's it's a real great instance of that being to the match's benefit and arguably being the match's best trait, which isn't talking down the match. It's talking up the conclusion because the match itself, as I've already said, I think is tremendous um, and a and a real great example of a semi paper pay per view semi main event. You know, it features one of your big stars. 
against a fresh opponent that he's not wrestled before. They have the perfect amount of time to do their thing. 15 minutes plays into a larger rivalry. You know, in a lot of ways, the reason I have a soft spot for this is because I think the the setup for it and the execution of it is actually pretty spotless. It is. It is. It's it's really it's really well set up on TV, um, and they have like a brilliant back and forth match. Um, the inter- the intervention that that gets it waved off happens just at the right time. Um, you know, everything's on point. The ref's on point. Lawler's on point. You know, the two wrestlers are on point. Yeah, just just really, really well done. Absolutely. Uh, right, so we're on to uh, Sean and Razor's uh, rematch. We've talked a little bit about this already. Um, I feel like this this match, I mean, it goes 25 minutes, which for... You know, it's kind of like... That's like 2019 ladder match levels, that, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you certainly... I mean, I can't recall how long their match at WrestleMania 10 is, but I don't think it's close it's to only, that, is it? It's only about 18 minutes, I think, something yeah, like that. So, so they obviously, it, it's kind of one of those things where they feel like they need to do more than they did in the first one. I feel like this one actually starts a little bit better, and obviously they've got more familiarity with the gimmick. So, like, in some ways, there's less there's less kind of the, of the awkward pauses, but also I feel like it loses its way a little bit at the end. I think generally it's it's less awkward than the first one, even in the way that it's structured. Uh, and I would agree that I think it starts off stronger. Uh, and I think it's got a stronger premise at its core. My issue with it is that it's a bizarre instance of Shawn Michaels seemingly forgetting the story that they're telling halfway through when he stops favoring the leg that's supposedly been injured. Um, and... As a result, that always bothers me. And like you said earlier, you know, there's a little bit of commotion around sort of the conclusion. And there's a bit of a tantrum at the start with how high the belt is and stuff. And it's little things like that. You know, when Sean was at his worst, first career Sean was at his worst, that can that can mount up and build up and take you out of the, the moment. And that feels as a phenomenon, particularly pronounced during Eugen, because it was always so consistently entertaining. It's immersive to watch. And so when you get those moments, it's quite jarring and awkward and it takes you out of the, you know, when I watch new gen and maybe it's because I love it so much, it's not the kind of distanced engagement that I might have. If I watched a wrestling show of, of more recent years, you know, I mean, it's like I'm there, I'm fully engaged with it. And so when you get those moments, they're, they're a bit more jarring. And I think that takes me out. The other issue is, and again, this is actually, to be fair, probably to New Gen, it's probably a, a positive for New Gen. It's probably talking New Gen up. Um, but my problem with it is that the the story they seemingly want to tell here, Rollins and Ambrose basically perfect in 2015 and, and execute absolutely to perfection without blemish. Uh, and so it's for me, it's a case of, well, I could watch Sean versus Razor at SummerSlam 95, or I could watch either Sean Razor at WrestleMania 10 or Ambrose Rollins at Money in the Bank 2015 and either one of those provide a, a, a better watch. Having said all of that, that's about taking the match in isolation. I think when you watch it in the context of SummerSlam 95, it's pretty invaluable because it, it presents the big set piece of the night. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the centerpiece of the, of the table 
to strain a metaphor. Um, so I think it's it's invaluable to the show, and it feels like a real high point for the show, and it feels like the show's probably weightiest contribution for those who are less enamored with Brett and Yankum. Uh, it, my issues with it are more in isolation, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of compare this a little bit to the Jeff Hardy, Rob Van Dam, um, one from SummerSlam uh, 2001, um, which obviously we, we covered as part of our Invasion series, in that, you know, similar in the sense that obviously they had the first, like Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy had a, a match at um, Invasion itself, which, you know, involved, even though it's a hardcore match, it involved ladders quite quite prominently because of it being Jeff's sort of speciality. And then they have the actual ladder match at SummerSlam. And it's kind of, I always feel about that, that ladder match at SummerSlam, if they nail the finish then that's one of the best ladder matches ever. And this is sort of similar. Like, the ending of this is, like, so awkward. You know, the, the thing that's great about the WrestleMania one, WrestleMania 10 one, is that the, the finish is actually just really convincing. Like, Razor's stuck in the ropes and he can't move anywhere. Whereas this is, like, Sean goes and he tries to get at the bell and he kind of falls off the ladder and he goes back up and he has to get it again. Um. So, yep. yeah, so I, I kind of... Yeah, so I kind of think that it starts better than the WrestleMania 10 one, but the WrestleMania 10 one finishes much stronger and feels a lot leaner um, and maybe a lot less self-conscious because obviously this is a sequel. Um, I mean, it's it's it, it's it comes back to what we say at the top of the show, doesn't it? It's an unusually, uh, you know, post-truth era match to happen in New Gen because it's booked in the first place explicitly because people liked the first one uh, and it plays out in a very self-aware manner in the sense that it feels like it has to do something bigger or better or different to the first one because it knows that's the reason it exists as a match. So it, it, you know, it's the kind of thing you'd expect to see in NXT these days. It's so strange and it seems so out of character with the rest of the era as well. It's a really, really unique, uh, uh, unique element to the, to the period. Yeah. No, I'd agree with that. Um, and also, like, you know, babyface be babyface. You know, maybe there are slight echoes of what would happen with Sean and Brett at, um, at, at WrestleMania 12, kind of down the road. Um, maybe they're kind of experimenting a bit more with face be face at that time, um, which obviously, you know, prior to that, you only really ever saw with um, Warrior and Hogan at WrestleMania 6. Quite. Um, well, that's a, certainly certainly an interesting match, and of course, uh, interesting in the in night ninety five. We've already had Sean and Diesel. Now I've had Sean and Razor. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 becoming a pretty click centric year, isn't it? Um, all right. So the aforementioned Diesel is, of course, the WWF champion. Uh, by the way, he gives an absolutely awful promo at the top <laughs> of the show, like genuinely. <laughs> yeah, I remember like a couple of shows back being like, "Oh yeah, Diesel's pro work is not so bad, is it?" And then, no, no, I was wrong. This is terrible. Uh, <laughs> and, and then also like King Mabel, uh, bizarrely, by the way, I, didn't, I hadn't realised this. Like his King robes have got the WWF logo on them, which I find hilarious. <laughs> I have to say on the on the Diesel promo, I mean my uh, he he could never cut a promo as bad 
uh, to top what is my all-time favorite Diesel promo, which is the one at WrestleMania 11, when he loses his way halfway through, starts stuttering, and then just bizarrely starts <laughs> shouting on a completely different topic <laughs> altogether because he's totally lost where he's gotten to in his promo. Is still to my to my mind his 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 best work. Honestly, so well, I mean, when you look at Sid's promos in this era, like <laughs> good lord. Um, well, there was that also that bizarre Tatonka one when he was like being Sid's hype man. I quite enjoyed well, that. I mean, uh, you know, who who wouldn't big up Tatonka's mic skills? Well, exactly, Tatonka. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you think about all time mic guys: The Rock, Jericho, Tatonka. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Austin coming in at number five there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, obviously this match is pretty infamous and there's no getting away from it. I remember watching this when I wrote my new gen series going way back to the start of my LOP career. Uh, it was it was bad when I rewatched it and, it you know, there's no getting away from it. It's a bad match. It is a bad match. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> about as much as we could say about it. I will say this, though. It's interesting to think how different people might remember Diesel's legacy as WWF champion if on this event he had wrestled Sean Albright instead. No, indeed, indeed. That's the, that is, that is the, I've always thought that, right? If you look at Diesel's opponents, he gets Brett bookending it. Uh, he gets Sean very early on. And then again, very late on. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, that's the thing. Is, that's the thing is he gets Sean... After he's already lost the title, he wrestles Undertaker. After he's already lost the title, series, so yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So it's like, so he gets Sean, and so he gets Sean and Brett right at the start of his title reign. So if you think about his early, you know, his early title defenses, they're like Brett at the Rumble, um, Sean at Mania, um, but then he kind of ends up with a couple of matches against Sid, the tag match, and obviously we enjoyed those, uh, but you know, there's no getting away from the fact that Sid is no is no Brett or Sean. Uh, then, of course, he gets King Mabel. Um, obviously, he'll go on to Bulldog, and those matches I really quite enjoy. Uh, but it's certainly the case that the the general narrative around Diesel's title reign being a failure is essentially the Sid, Sid Mabel period. Um, it is kind of a bit Hogan light, you know, it's that yeah. sort of like, you know, overcome your fellow. You're, yeah, the guy that's, you know, Sid is that guy that is Diesel's height and weight. Mabel is, you know, a, the big fat guy like a King Kong Bundy. It's just that sort of the birth, the birth of fate of the men's division. It's just that kind of eighties uh, thing that people were tired of, and that's why they turned to people like Brett in the first place, is to get away from that. And Vince had kind of gambled on his 80s strategy hitting again, and it it just didn't really. I think that what's going to be interesting in the next few shows is when we get into his title defense against Bulldog, which is something no one ever talks about. I'm I'd be surprised if a lot of people actually knew that exists uh, on on one of the new houses. Um, and you know, there's a couple of title defences on TV. I know certainly one against Bam Bam Bigelow relatively early on. I think they would. I think the Sid thing isn't as problematic as as Mabel, and I think that 
like I said, if maybe not even Brett or Sean, but if Diesel had been placed against someone in this SummerSlam main event that was able to perhaps give him more of a of a work rate heavy match like a Razor Ramon, you know, or 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 hell, I've just mentioned him, or, or even Bam Bam Bigelow, or someone who could deliver something that that was more mobile and more athletic and perhaps a little denser with content, then I think his entire legacy as champion changes. Um, and I totally agree. You know, there's, there is a, a, an awkward sense of Hoganism that hangs over the way his title reign is designed in that middle portion. But like I said, I think you get away with the Sid stuff. If in this highest profile match here at SummerSlam, you had a program against someone or even Savio, hell, even Savio Vega against someone who could, you know, work, uh, who could basically provide these are what he needed, which was someone more mobile to dance around him while he played the power game, essentially. Uh, and then I think his entire legacy changes. And it's interesting to me to think about how someone, and especially a title reign of the length of diesels, you know, which was, which was a year long, how it can all hinge on or feel like it hinges on basically a single match. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm put in mind a little bit of, you know, what would have really worked for Diesel would have been what they did with Sheamus in 2012. When he had that World Heavyweight Championship run uh, as a face, when he had basically those great matches with, like, Del Rio, Ziggler. Oh, okay. Um, 2012. Yeah. yeah, Big Show. And it was kind of like, even though Seamus, I mean, it's pretty similar actually. Seamus's Bayface character was like nothing to write home about. <laughs> distressing. Distressing, yeah. <laughs> uh, it got more distressing after that title reign, really. But, <laughs> but, but um, the matches were really, really good. And I think, you know, people always remember that, that Seamus, uh, when he was that secondary brand champion, was in really good matches against guys that, would give him good matches. Like he starts off that title reign with Daniel Bryan. You know he has Ziggler in the in the middle portion. He's got Del Rio in that middle portion. He's got Big Show at the end. And by then, Big Show's like obviously a veteran and, and can really kind of work his own style and work it well. So Diesel, yeah, I do think it would have been a huge benefit if if say Sean had wrestled Sid and Diesel had, had Razor. Um, or it's a it's a pity that Triple H is about a year away here because Triple H v Diesel in this spot, you know, would have been really really good. Um, I mean, it's uh, Sledgehammer well, a pole match, but yeah. you know, but a few I, years I, early. I, what do you reckon? I I quite you do. It's your guilty pleasure. I quite like that <laughs> Sledgehammer on a on a pole match. I have to Sledgehammer. It's a Sledgehammer ladder match. Sorry, not Sledgehammer on a pole match. Um, uh, but which it's, makes it's a, it even more bizarre that I would enjoy it. Well, it's a bit like uh, how I really like are. the uh, the William Regal Edge brass knucks on a pole match. Maybe we had to... Well, at least that's got William Regal and Edge in rather than a latter-day Triple H and, a, <laughs> <laughs> and over-the-hill Kevin Nash. Um, True. <laughs> um, maybe that's something... Maybe we should uh, we should do a Guilty Pleasures show at some do you, point. Do you remember when Dean Ambrose was undefeated in contract on a pole match? <laughs> <laughs> Still is. <laughs> Still is, yeah. Yep. Um, AEW, you're missing out. Oh God. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's off topic, but on the Seamus point, um, it's kind of on topic, to be fair. I think that 2012 run demonstrates that actually with that generation of talent, all they needed to do was embrace a new gen style philosophy of, of emphasizing the fact that your top guys 
because Cena was a top guy in the same sense Hogan and Rock were top guys, you know, big personality, lots of dazzling charisma, you know, so that any shortfalls in the ring didn't matter so much. And it was like that that's what they were holding out for and that's what they were trying to force again, rather than realizing that with Sheamus, Del Rio and Ziggler, you could have easily adopted a new gen attitude again and made the emphasis these guys can wrestle great matches and that's why they're the top guys, you know, and carried the company on that on those shoulders for a while and it seems like it's a, a, a battle that they're still fighting themselves over um, and I think with Sheamus in particular it always felt like he could have very much fitted the bill that Sean and Brett did I'm not saying he's on their level but fitted that style of a top guy the problem was to me at least was the flimsy foundation they gave him from the very beginning when they basically introduced him and within a month he was beating Cena in a tables match in a finish that looked like it was a mistake. Well, it's you know, very... it, was like, it was like from that point, if you build a house on sand like that, it's never going to turn into what you want it to turn into. It's just going to collapse in on itself. And I think that he, he became a difficult sell from that point on. Well, again, it's, it's not so dissimilar to Diesel, you know? Like, you know, he has that, that performance at the Royal Rumble pretty much out of nowhere because he's just a bodyguard as, as really before that and then you know within nine months or so he is the champion mm. um and you know they gambled on the fact they had a, a you know big guy great look uh got some charisma and they just they 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 went all in with it and you can't blame vince for gambling on, on diesel i don't think but also, had they made it a bit of a smarter gamble, well, I mean, you know, essentially what they end up doing is having Diesel learn on the job so that WCW ends up reaping the benefits of it in the end. Well, this is what I was about to say, absolutely. I think the the great tragedy of Kevin Nash's career is that, you know, he, he left the company that won. Uh, and as a result, his legacy is perhaps... You know, he was a member. He had a failed title run in WWF. He was a member of the NWO, and he later politicked as a top guy in WCW. And I think that uh, that's a shame because I think, if particularly you look at what he does after he loses the championship, you know, he was doing Steve Austin shtick before Steve Austin was doing it. Essentially, in a lot of ways, you know, he was flipping the bird on television. Um, you know, he was he was being the anti-hero. Uh, he was he was being a bad guy in terms of the way he was being written, but he watched like an anti-hero and it was a slow transition because for a while he was playing both sides. Uh, and the likelihood is if he'd have stuck around, that type would have worked its way back to him. Uh, and if his form in beginning of 96, when he leaves WWF was anything to go on, a second title run for him would have absolutely stormed it, you know, because he, he would have had that character that he has after he drops the title here. Um, not here as in SummerSlam, but hit, you know, 95 Survivor Series. Um, and it, you know, I think he would have been, been quite the revolutionary uh, character once that title did work its way back around to him. So I think that the funny thing is, while his leaving kick-started, you know, a competition in wrestling that I don't really want to get into, um, that everyone vaunts as, as one of the best things that happened to the industry, uh, you know, if he'd have stuck around, who knows what might have happened. It might've been even better, you know, um, at least certainly for his career, I think it would have been better. Uh, and I think I dare say for the WWF, it might've been better as well. It's in, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a company move. No one really talks about, but it's possibly one of the most important that ever happened. 
Well, it's fascinating to to look back on because you know all the backstage stuff about this was that he really didn't want to go to WCW. You know, it was he he tried to get the same contract out of Vince that WCW offered him. Vince said he couldn't afford it, but he never forgot that in WCW he was Vinny Vegas, he was Oz, he was a joke, and it was WWF that had given him um, the spotlight and had, you know, actually treated him properly. So, yeah, for both, I think for both him and and for Razor, it's 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 very much the, the case that they followed the money, um, but they certainly weren't leaving because they were disgruntled with how they're being used or anything like that, really. Which I no, guess is well, why you see them, you know, uh, fulfil their commitments in, you know, in, in such an enthusiastic way. I mean, particularly Diesel putting over Sean on the way out at uh, Good Friends, Better Enemies, you know, just sort of shows you that um, there was no hard feelings there, really. And, of course, the curtain call. Indeed. <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll be back next week, guys. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at the next show in the series, um, which, of course, is in your house. Three triple header. Um, one of those bizarre matches where lots of belts are on the line at once. Um, which He who has the power has the gold. WWF. In the 90s, and this isn't exclusive to New Gen because it happens in Attitude as well, would now and again book one of these matches, and they are the most confusing thing to watch, <laughs> like <laughs> ever. But anyway, we shall do our best to uh, to, to break that down next this week. One, this one in particular is confusing because you get substitutions in the participants and all sorts. Oh yeah, I know. It's very, very, very odd. Um, so... So, you, so you get people... In the match, defending titles they don't have in a multi-title. Yeah, it's. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it's 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 uh, only in pro wrestling is probably what I'd sum that up as. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll be back next week. Uh, till then, do listen to the rest of LOP Radio shows. We are available, of course, on Spreaker, on iTunes, on various other podcast catchers, uh, and of course on YouTube as well. Um, and yes, we will see you next week. Have a great weekend. See you later. Bye.